0: Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Right now, it's time for a little Cuban culture, and to do that, we're talking with Brendan Sainsbury. Brendan writes the Lonely Planet Guides to Cuba and to Havana. Brendan, thanks for joining us. Hi. Hi. How did you get into Cuban culture?
1: Um, Well, I first went to Cuba in 1997, just on a whim, really. Um, I think the music attracted me, first of all, um, but many other things as well. I'd heard a lot about Cuba. I went for a couple of weeks and had a very good time, but then kind of left it for a long time. Then later on in 2001, I believe... I was working in Angola as a teacher, a country in Africa, and many of my fellow teachers, Angolans, had been educated in Cuba. So I was very fascinated to find out how and why that happened. So I went back to Cuba as a travel guide, got lucky with a British travel company, and I was a guide there for uh, about 18 months. So that's when I first got involved with Cuba and its culture.
0: It's interesting. There's sort of a fraternity or a camaraderie of countries that are former Soviet bloc allies, and it's an interesting sort of uh, connection that way, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and I think it's one that a lot of people don't know about, really, particularly in Angola, a country which is not so well known in the world, but um, the the connection with Cuba is very strong, yeah, absolutely. Yeah,
0: I mean, for a long time, the only Angolans and Cubans I'd ever met were in, in Bulgaria. (laughs) Yeah. Makes sense.
1: And also, um, it's not just, uh, obviously, Cuban troops were in Angola, but uh, there were many doctors and teachers, a lot of exchanges and a lot of Angolans were educated in Cuba because their education in their country was particularly poor.
0: Right. Now, we always think of Cuba as exporting revolution if you grew up in the United States, but Cuba also exports a lot of doctors, doesn't it?
1: Uh, yeah, many doctors. One particularly recent example, I, I think over 2,000 doctors were sent to the Kashmir earthquake disaster. You know, that was a, a very important thing. But all over the world, I think, I think in about 54 countries, approximately, uh, there are Cuban doctors working.
0: You know, that's fascinating. Cuba is famous for, I think, being desperately poor, in part, I suppose, because of their economic system and in part because of the embargo by the United States. Yet they have this abundance of doctors. To what do we attribute that?
1: Well, they've always prioritised health, that was uh, something from the start really. Health and education are the two things in Cuba which uh, have never been sacrificed. And they're very good at preventative health and medicine, that's the key for them really, because they, they lack so many drugs and medicines, because the embargo actually includes that now. They've had to develop their preventative medicine, so community doctors, things like that, all over Cuba, medical facilities, everywhere, and, and literacy is included in that. There's schools in every tiny village.
0: Now, isn't that interesting? There'd be a silver lining to a, a fierce embargo, and that would be uh, an expertise in preventative medicine.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and also, one other point is that Cuba Export Medicine, um, they've actually um, they, they've provided treatment to victims of a Chernobyl disaster. They've inoculated uh, Haitian children against measles. And even, uh, I believe, uh, they came up with a, a vaccine for meningitis B, which was used by GlaxoSmithKline, um, I believe.
0: And tell me a little bit about the literacy situation here, because I've long heard that Cuba is one of the, if not the most literate culture in Latin America.
1: Absolutely. Well, the Cuban national hero is a guy called José Martí, who was a great writer himself, and he's quoted and and utilized all over Cuba. He's like the Cuban Shakespeare, I suppose. Hmm. Um, But all over Cuba, again, in the smallest village, kids will go to school. Education is part of the fabric of society. They're very poetic people, they're very um, literate people, they're very aware of their history, and it's a very strong national pride.
0: So when the Soviet Union fell, their lifeline for a lot of uh, financial aid stopped, and times got even worse in Cuba economically, did literacy take a hit, or did the, were they still able to uh, educate their people?
1: The level literacy, which is about 96%, 97%, roughly the same as the US, has not suffered at all, and, and nor really has the medical system, although drugs are a lot harder to procure. If you look at the indexes like life expectancy, et cetera, um, infant mortality, they haven't digressed and they haven't gone down in any way. So so they, they've held on to that. It's been tough, but they, they've managed to do it.
0: Well, Now, when a country, especially a poor country, has to deal with uh, an embargo that basically strangles them economically, they have to get very clever. Uh, Cuba's famous for having all of these uh, vintage American cars and somehow they keep them running. Uh, do they just become very clever mechanics or how do they how do they keep these old cars going when there's mm-hmm. this uh, very effective embargo?
1: Uh, well, the big debate is whether it's because of the fantastic American workmanship or the, the Cuban ingenuity, which is the one that's kept them going. But um, I think it's uh, they, they keep them going by just by surviving. If you look in the hood of a, a vintage Chevrolet, a 1956 Chevrolet, for example, you generally you won't find the original engine. You'll find a larder engine or a tractor engine or a Soviet truck engine. They've often held together with coat hangers and bits of wire. So they've developed this fantastic... Um, ingenuity in the face of uh, adversity, I suppose.
0: Is that right? So if you know your cars, mm-hmm. that's a fun part of your visit to Cuba, I suppose.
1: Uh, it's absolutely, it's the best car museum you'll ever go to. I think there's 60,000 old American cars still running in Cuba. You just um, walk down so, the street
0: and you're you're touring classic old cars.
1: Yeah, and and actually, there's, um, being British myself, you, you see the odd British car as well, which is a real joy. Uh, you know, I've seen Hillman minxes, I've seen Jaguars, all, all kinds of things.
0: Do uh, movie producers take advantage of the fact that they don't need to import uh, old cars? They can just get a a time warp visually? Well,
1: the the Cuban movie producers do, but um, interestingly, uh, um, I was writing something for one of the books the other day about Hollywood movies on Havana, and obviously none of them have been filmed there because they they can't be, so um, I think they still have to utilize the the, the cars they get from elsewhere. Um, Movies like Havana with Robert Redford and and The Lost City, which is the Sandy Garcia movie, They, they were both filmed in the Dominican Republic.
0: The movie Havana was filmed in the Dominican Republic.
1: Yeah. Um, oh man. And even The Godfather, uh, which had a big Havana scene, um, was uh, filmed in Dominican Republic.
0: And is that because American movie producers just couldn't get permission to film actually in Havana?
1: Yeah, absolutely. They they, they, they um, come under the same rules as anyone else.
0: Right. I know that when countries are dealing with embargoes, they have to get creative about other aspects of uh, day-to-day life. When I was in Nicaragua, they were dealing with another embargo, and uh, people would go to the rum store without bottles because there weren't bottles. They would go with plastic bags and fill their bags up with rum. Tell me some other creative ways that the Cubans handle their uh, hardships caused by the embargo.
1: One thing, um very interesting thing, uh, was the agriculture, um, because they used to use pesticides but when the Soviet Union fell, tons of pesticides were no longer available, so they basically had to get into um market gardening. They used to urban agriculture. They they actually requisitioned old bits of land, rubbish dumps and, and things like that and, and made them into urban gardens. And in that way they provided about thirty percent of their um fresh produce was provided in the city itself, in Havana and, uh, and other cities in Cuba. So agriculture is really, um, they've been ingenious in that way. They've gone from tractors back to oxen, homegrown sort of fertilizers, use organic techniques. So um, very interesting.
0: Are the people bitter and angry if you walk around as a person? uh, Well, you're British, so you don't have that uh, uh, image situation. But if an American walks down the streets of Havana, uh, people have had all this hardship from the uh, embargo. What's an American going to feel on on the streets of Havana?
1: No no animosity to to, um, individual Americans at all towards the government, possibly, but um, nothing to Americans. I mean, I think 80,000 80, Americans still go there every year. Um, you don't get your passport stamped. There's no there's no ban in Cuba for Americans to go to Cuba. So no animosity. They're very interested in, in others. And bitterness? No, not at all, really. Cuba, I mean, it's funny. It's a supposed communist country, and you, you traditionally think of communist countries as grey and dull and utilitarian. Cuba is the most buoyant, colourful, alive place I've ever been to. So it defies a lot of those images. And you certainly, you'll get hustlers, as you will in any developing country where you're richer than they are, but, you know, it's it's pretty innocuous.
0: I'm talking with Brendan Sainsbury, and Brendan uh, is an Englishman. He lives in Vancouver, Canada, and he writes The Lonely Planet Guide to Cuba, as well as The Lonely Planet City Guide to Havana. Brendan, we should make it clear uh, when we're talking about Cuba with an American market that Americans are not allowed legally to travel in Cuba uh, except for certain st- circumstances. I guess if you're in government business or educational business or, or a charity or something like this, uh, but a lot of Americans do go to Cuba via Mexico or canada and that's just between you and your maker if you're gonna do that but uh, when you do get to the border of cuba you said that the uh, border guards in cuba are happy to not stamp your passport is that right
1: yeah they don't stamp anyone's passport you have a a, a sort of little travel card visa so to speak and that gets stamped and that you must keep that the whole time you're in cuba
0: so they just want you they're happy that you're coming regardless of where you're from
1: yeah, irrespective of where you're from, the fact that you're from the US won't make any difference than it will if you're from Britain to them, um, Britain or um, Canada or, or anywhere else. Uh, the letter of the law actually is that you, for the US citizens is you can't spend dollars in Cuba. That's the technicality, um, which basically means you can't go there, I suppose. But yeah, people do, but that's a huge, there, there's a risk with that. And particularly the current administration, they've down the hatches and it's, it's even harder now to go to Cuba than it was, say, Five
0: years ago. So you're saying technically if I went to Cuba without a penny in my pocket and without a credit card and I just uh, wandered around for three days and people gave me uh, you know, some rice and beans and I had a good time and I got back on the plane, that would actually be legally okay as far as you understand I think
1: it? I think if you had a good lawyer, you'd probably get away. If I had a good off. lawyer, all right.
0: <laughs> well, uh, I, I do know that the number one Caribbean destination for Canadians and Germans is Cuba. Is that still the case as far as you know?
1: Yeah, um, from my uh, information, uh, 600,000 Canadians go a year, which is over a quarter of the um, total tourists who, who go to Cuba um, are Canadians. A lot of them, the, the way the way it is in Cuba, there's a, there's a big kind of all-inclusive tourism side, uh, similar to say Cancun is for the Americans. The main place for this is called Baradero as a resort. A lot of the Canadians go there. Um, some actually discover what I'd call the real Cuba, but A lot of them stay in the resort. It's kind of their little Cancun, so to speak. It's a little bit cheaper than Cancun.
0: The Canadians generally, the mainstream Canadian travellers, are looking for a change of weather, but not necessarily a change of culture.
1: Yeah, and they're looking for sun, sea... Sand
0: and not cheap. much socialism. <laughs> cheap and cheap rum, yeah. But if you yeah. want to, of course, you can break out of that. You know, the, all the yeah. the Riviera beaches are the same thing. You've got enclaves yeah. of Belgians and enclaves of Irish and enclaves of Brits down in the south of Spain. And Absolutely. really, all they want is the sunshine, and, uh, but they don't want to leave their, their hometown beer, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, nearly two million people visit Cuba a year. You write At a least. guidebook to Cuba. Do you have any idea mm. um, how, does, how is it selling? Does it sell in the United States?
1: The Guidebook to Cuba. Uh, well, it's published out for the United States. I, I had to write it in American English, which, which hurt, <laughs> being <laughs> British. Um, but um, I, I believe it sells in the, in the U.S. Um, certainly in Cuba, I, I saw a lot of people with the previous edition of the guidebook when I was researching this edition. Um, uh, a lot of people, yes. Yeah, it's it's,
0: it's perfectly legal to buy a Cuba guidebook in the United States, in other words.
1: I should hope so. That would be really infringing on liberty, wouldn't it?
0: All right. Let me talk about Cuban culture. We've talked about the nitty-gritty and uh, a little bit about getting there, but uh, I want to talk about the actual culture that, that makes Cuba unique. It's it, Is Cuba distinct from other Caribbean islands as far as its uh, culture goes?
1: Pretty much. Um, th- there are some similarities with Puerto Rico and with the Dominican Republic, um, both Spanish-speaking. Uh, and and there's certainly I know Jose Martí, a big hero of Cuba, referred to Puerto Rico and Cuba as sort of two wings on the same bird, so to speak. But I think because of more, their more recent histories, they've kind of, the, the culture's moved apart a little. But certainly things like the language, the accent, the Spanish accent, which is very heavy in Cuba, is similar uh, to Puerto so Rico. So you're saying
0: like uh, two or three generations ago, Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, and Costa Rica would have been cultural uh, sisters or brothers?
1: Yeah, certainly. In, in the end of the nineteenth century, with, with, with Jose Marti, he 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 really saw a kind of nationalism between the three, I suppose. But it wasn't to happen. Um, all three, don't forget, were were Spanish colonies far longer than the rest of Latin America until the eighteen ninety
0: eight. You got the the uh, Spanish influence, and the and then you've got yep. the uh, slavery from West Africa, right?
1: Yep. Yeah. The uniqueness for me is basically um, it, it was one of the first countries, Cuba, in, in the Americas, to be colonized, and the indigenous population was almost wiped out was wiped out effectively whereas in mexico and peru that wasn't the case so that was one one thing secondly slavery was spanish-sponsored slavery is slightly different to in the us um the the slaves were allowed to keep together in their tribes they were allowed to drum which is very important in the subsequent development of the music and they're a little little more um nicer to the african brethren i suppose Uh, and that again caused the unique side of cuban culture and the, the way the music developed um, so th- there are two particular things. A, a third thing is this guy, Jose Martí, I keep referring to, very, very important, um, was the man who really invented Cuban nationalism and the Cuban sense of itself. Because Cuba was Spanish so much longer than than any other country in, in Latin America, uh, and also because of the American influence, it's so close to America, Cubans really felt like they were being... David and Goliath struggle. They were... You know, I always call them the Irish of the Americas. It's like a small country with a big, strong neighbour but a small country with a big personality also.
0: Wow, the Irish of the Americas, that's good.
1: Yeah, because particularly because of the culture. You know, Irish culture has permeated around the world, and Cuba is very like that. I see a strong national pride, a strong sense of themselves, a strong sense of history.
0: To try to put together the, the distinctions, or, or what is the distinctive yep. qualities of Latin America, because at first glance, they all speak Spanish, and there's a mix of yep. indigenous and slaves and, and Spaniards yep. and so on. In Cuba, what you're saying is indigenous population wiped out. Most of today's mm-hmm. population a mix between Spanish uh, settlers and uh, West African slaves.
1: Yep, and also the fact that they they were a Spanish colony a lot longer than anyone else and, right. and, and the American influence. So, and then, obviously, since Fidel Castro took power, then they've, they've punched well above their weight in the world in terms of their fame, at least, because everyone knows who Fidel Castro is. Right. He's one of the few leaders who you know by his first name, um, you know, Fidel. And still, I think kids today even still know who Fidel Castro is.
0: I'm talking with Brendan Sainsbury, and he writes The Lonely Planet Guide to Cuba and The Lonely Planet Guide to Havana. Brendan, Cuba is basically then Spanish and West African slave culture mixed together. How then has this generation or so of the um, the, the Castro years affected the basic makeup of Cuban culture?
1: Well, it, it's instilled a survivor's spirit, and it's in some ways cemented a, a national pride. It's promoted things like education and health, uh, and it, it's, it's cut the Cubans off from America in, in a big way and cut families into, so, um, you know, it's, it's had a strong effect, that's for sure. I don't think fundamentally, I think Cuban culture was formed long before Castro came along, um, and he's just intervened in that way, but, you know... So and the fundamental a culture longer. is
0: still there, and it'll survive Fundamental
1: culture is still there, yeah, absolutely.
0: You mentioned the uh, the drumming from the Spanish uh, slave heritage, and yeah. that has something to do with the Santeria religion also, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, um, the Santeria religion is a a, a mixture of African beliefs which the slaves brought over uh, and hid behind a, a, a Catholic veneer, so to speak. Catholicism was obviously strong with the Spanish, and the slaves were kind of forced to, to worship in that way, but they, they hid their, their old beliefs and their old gods, deities, behind African saints, and what developed was this religion called Santeria, and a, a fundamental part of it was the, was the drumming rituals. And that eventually developed into what we call rumba, which is a distinctly Cuban music, which came from the docks of Havana and Mantanzas in the 1890s. And then that that helped to develop everything from salsa to son to, to all kinds of genres. These days in Cuba, Santeria is very, very strong. Whites, blacks... Across the board, it's not just um, African-based anymore. Um, It's a distinct Cuban religion. And the music, particularly rumba music, is very strongly related to it. And then don't forget, on top of rumba, what you have is a Spanish guitar, which is a strong flamenco, things like this, this strong music mixed with the rumba. Then you get Cuban music. You're kind of talking now of a very complex and uh, interesting genre.
0: Is Santeria, is it a Christian uh, religion or it just has a kind of a veneer?
1: They're not technically. I mean, they, they, they will go to a Catholic church, Santa Ria, but they, they um they have their own kind of what they call temples. It's quite a, quite a complex religion, but but very interesting and very quite open. It's not like voodoo. I mean, it's not like there's not kind of.
0: But they don't um, read them. They don't have the Bible, do they?
1: Well, they would they would have a Bible as well. They they, they sort of half believe what the Catholics believe, but they, then they have their own African beliefs. So it's a it's a it's a mold of the two really. And
0: as a traveller, can you drop in on a temple and experience a worship?
1: You can. I mean, you have to be where you know they they. For travellers, they'll put on, you know, whether you get the authentic thing. I right. mean, if you walk around a sort of old Havana in, in of an evening, uh, you, you'll see a santeria drumming ritual going on, which they, they last, you know, twelve hours of drumming, hmm. um, almost like um, hypnotic. Uh, and, and if you, you know, they don't mind outsiders coming in and taking a look. No, um, but the the more sort of um, the the santeras, which were like the priests, um, they're a little bit more closed and private. Right. But you know, I, I know people. I used to take my trips, my when I was guiding, to certain houses where a guy would explain and show altars and various explain the rites.
0: But if you actually find a a, sentier, a service or whatever you call it, it's an yeah. authentic thing. I mean, it's a it's not a like yeah. a little weird oddity that somehow survives in one little no, crack. No, no. It's no. A, it's a mainstream kind of religion today in Cuba.
1: Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, some people say that Fidel even, even, you know, goes to his Santero. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I don't think anyone in Cuba really Cuban would, would, you know, not listen to someone like that. There are also elements of French culture, for example, in Cuba, which came from Haiti. Um, After the revolution there in 1791, a lot of French Haitians came to Cuba and they they mixed into the pot as well. And then out of this, you have the kind of basic first Cuban genre is called son music, S-O-N, son. And that is a kind of Spanish guitar mixed with the the African drum, so to speak, and that's the distinctive Cuban sound, which most people will recognize when they hear it on the radio.
0: A lot of us know uh, Cuban music from the Buena Vista Social Club movie released in 1999. How does that relate to all of this?
1: Well, that's that's, that's son music, really. That's the son music from the 40s and 50s, which was very popular at the time, um, has been rediscovered since. Um, As I was saying earlier, because of uh, the Castro years and the embargo, a lot of things in Cuba have remained out of years, to the Americans for a long time so um, Ray an American guitarist went back to rediscover this um, in the late 1990s and he got these old timer musicians back together one of them was 96 years old it's called Compay Segundo, one was Shining Shoes in Havana called Ibram Ferrer and these guys and and ladies actually were put back together in a band and they made a, a record they made a film and they played at Carnegie Hall and I believe they played in Europe quite a lot as well, they won a Grammy award I believe so um, this this put Cuban music on the map I can't speak for America but in Canada and Britain and Europe this this thing was a huge album
0: and is that a good uh, way for somebody to prep for a trip to Cuba to see the Buena Vista Social Club
1: it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a few years out of date now, but it's, it's that there were a lot of follow-up albums made. Um, it's a great intro to Cuban music. One of the things about it is that when you go to Cuba, that they'll assume that all tourists or foreigners want to hear that music. So the <laughs> the twelve or so songs on the original album are what you hear the whole time from must the little a, guitar trios.
0: Must be annoying for the musicians in Cuba to get that request all the time.
1: Yeah, but but you, it's it's a great entry thing, and, and you must um then use it to seek out other music because it's just a starting point. So it's so. Complex and diverse. That's the
0: key: is to get beyond the tourist traps in any of your travels. Yep. And uh, many people, when they go to Cuba, if they don't know now, they better learn. You want to get into the music scene. How do you actually uh, experience that best as a traveler who doesn't want to just sit in a in a fancy hotel with 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 some sort of a touristic cliche on the stage?
1: Okay. Well, first off, get out of your fancy hotel. Mm-hmm. Um, stay there by all means. Um, get out of the resorts. And I think you know. I always say this in any country where you where you're visiting. Don't let it seek you out, seek it out yourself, you know? Don't let the, the music come to you. Or, or, you know, some of it's going to, but mm-hmm. you get out there and look for it. And in Cuba, and in Havana, that's easy, you follow the noise, because <laughs> it's everywhere. Every Everyone's a musician. One great thing about Cuba and, and um, the Cuban Revolution is the government has sponsored many, many music houses and cultural houses in every provincial town to sort of um, protect their music, so to speak. So mm. the best place to go in any provincial town is called the Casa de la Trova. Um, Casa de la the, Trova. Casa de la Trova. That's the place where all the, all the musicians will play. It's a government-sponsored music house
0: in every town. I love that idea. Just if you want the music, follow the sound. You can probably, if you're in a small town, you'll hear that in the evening when it's going on, eh?
1: Yeah, well, your first night in Cuba, you'll soon find that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, and this music, trova music, um, it, is kind of the trova. It comes from the word troubadour, trovador, troubadour, troubadour okay. which is like a travelling minstrel. So the original trova music was was kind of a, a Cuban version of Bob Dylan, so to speak. It's like not protest music as such, but but you know, interesting music which kind of pushed the boundaries a bit. I'm usually a solo guy on guitar, but right. these days these trova houses they have fantastic bands, all, all kinds of music.
0: Trova House. I've got an email from Elizabeth in Sacramento, and she wonders, she wants to go to Cuba and uh, go to a music or arts festival and uh, wants to know how, how do you learn about those things? And she says, the more low key, the better. Sounds like a Trova House is the place to go.
1: Yeah, the Trova House. Um, each town also has a Casa de la Cultura, which is more generalized cultural things like art and So the house of ballet, culture, literally. House of culture. Often there will also be a Casa de la Musica. Music House. I mean, there, there, there's many, many government-sponsored things in Cuba like that. So um, the
0: government sponsors the vivid traditional folk culture. It sounds like.
1: Yep, uh, they sponsor many things. There's even a there's even a Cuban rap agency, believe it or not, which is sponsored by the Cuban government.
0: <laughs> I'm talking with Brendan Sainsbury. He's an Englishman living in Vancouver who writes the guidebook for Lonely Planet covering Cuba and Havana. Brendan, I know how much money travel writers make from their guidebooks, and it can't be your only motivation. Uh, what what makes you so uh, passionate and, and, and committed to teaching about Cuba?
1: Um, I think because it's so different, there's, there's no no country like it. I mentioned earlier that they were the Irish of the Americas. I'm part Irish myself, and, and maybe I, I see a bit of that in Cuba. And and many things, just, just words, if I say to you cigars, if I say to you Che Guevara, If I say to you 1956 Chevrolets or, or, you know, well qualified doctors, uh, country in a time warp. It's just a very interesting place all around. I think what initially drove me or took me there was the music. I travelled in the past and and I find one of great props to take with you when you travel are things like a baseball or a football or a guitar. And I took my guitar to Cuba and I was, you know, Jimi Hendrix. (laughs) I'm not Jimi Hendrix, but I was. (laughs) Um, It was a great way of discovering the country and, um, you know, many an an evening I'll be with what I would consider a professional musician we would be sitting up after six hours of uh, a set and drinking rum and playing guitar at two in the morning so that's, that's Cuba for you
0: Brendan Sainsbury thank you so much it sounds like you've learned a lot from your travels and you're a great teacher happy travels
1: thank you
0: Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.